All right, we can find our places again. My wife and I were not supposed to be here. We were supposed to be in Indiana today. Our plans changed, and I had asked Kevin if he would bring the word. And when our plans changed, I told him, you still need to bring the word. So let's welcome Kevin Brummett. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. I don't usually do this, but uh, I couldn't get my my notes to print out, so I just had to bring the whole computer with me. So, all right. Hmm? Oh, that's not. I'm, I'm not actually controlling that. I've got my own. <laughs> So we have to coordinate this. So. All right. Okay, so if you'll stand with me for the reading of the word. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You may be seated. All right. So, um, yeah, the way this came about, as as, uh, Larry said, was uh, he um, asked if I would fill the pulpit this morning, and he just it was about a couple of weeks ago that he asked. And so I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about, but I agreed. And then... um, Right after that, we were having Wednesday, uh, Saturday morning Bible study, the men's Bible study. And uh, uh, the, you can go to the next one. We were reading and actually finishing up the book of Judges. And we got to this, this the last part, 19, 20, 21 of Judges. And uh, I don't know how much time you spent in the book of Judges, but it's kind of a horrific book. Um, and it gets worse as it goes along. <laughs> And this is the end. So uh, we read this story, and, uh, you know, we're all kind of like shaking our heads as we read it. And Rob made the comment. He says, I don't think I've ever heard uh, a sermon from the pulpit on this story. And that sounded kind of like a challenge to me, you know. <laughs> so I said, okay, I, I will try this. Um, um, so we're not studying Timothy. We read Timothy, we, we, but we're studying Judges. Okay, that's that's the that's the scripture we're going to be we're going to be talking about, and mainly chapter nineteen. Um, I won't read all of it because you know it's fairly long, but I'll read parts of it and talk about the rest of it. Kind of do a little synopsis to kind of get us along. Um, There's a reason that Rob hasn't heard, <laughs> and most people haven't heard a sermon on this story, um, and, and, and that's because um, the whole, like I said, the whole book of Judges is kind of horrific. Um, it, it's, 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 quite honestly, it's, it's a terrible story. And so now I'm a little extra nervous because we don't have children's church. <laughs> so 
we've got to talk about got to talk about this. Uh, um, next, next, next slide, William. Um, you don't find this story in this version of the Bible. It, it's not there. They they leave they leave it out. Okay. Um, <laughs> In fact, I'll I, I give you the warning. Next one, William. Um, this, is, uh, this is a graphic story. Um, all this is in here. Now, I'll do my best to keep it as kid-friendly as possible since we have some in here. But the story is just a rough story, okay? And if you really feel like, I mean, if you're familiar with it or if you feel like it's getting a little too hairy and you need to take your kids out, I, I guess I, I encourage you to do that. I'll, like I said, we'll... We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll do our best. Um, but I guess you may, <laughs> you may be asking if it's so rough, why read it? Well, uh, next one, William, I'll refer you back to the first scripture we read. All scripture. You see that right there at the beginning? All scripture. It's inspired and it's useful and it's important and it's there for a reason. And so even these hard stories like this, we have to look them in the face, kind of, and try to figure out what they're telling us. What does it mean? Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely Scripture. I keep looking back. Chapter 19, still in Judges. It's right here in my Bible. It's right there in yours, too, unless you're using that beginner's Bible. <laughs> so we're going to have to wrestle with it. Okay, we're going to wrestle with this chapter. Uh now, I've, I've already wrestled with it. I'll be honest with you. I've, I've listened to uh, what few sermons I could find. I've listened to them. Uh, I've read it over and over again. I've read some commentaries. It's, it's hard. And there are differing, differing opinions that come, come out of this. But I, I've got some thoughts, I think, that seem to put it all together to make some sense. And I would welcome anybody who has... Differing opinions from the ones that I'm expressing up here to come, you know, come to me and, and talk to me about it. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's how we work through these things is, is doing it together. So I will go ahead and tell you that also, yeah, I, I, I prayed about this one quite a bit too. I asked the Holy Spirit to kind of help me through this. So, and I will tell you that some of these thoughts have come from an online blog. Uh, it's called Meeting God in the Margins, and it's written by a young lady who came to Christ as an adult. Uh, and she has a series of blogs that she calls uh, First Readings. So as a new Christian, uh, she reads them and she kind of blogs about her understanding of them. But she says that when she did this one, she didn't get print a first reading. She had to read it over and over again and go and find some help on this one. So these are some of the conclusions. That she, some of these are the conclusions that she came to, too, um, there. All right. Uh, next next one, William. All right. So I don't know how well you can, you may not be able to read these place names, but this we, we do need a little bit of setup here uh, as far as, where this takes place in history and in geography, okay? Um, <clears throat> the book of Judges immediately follows the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua immediately follows the five books of Moses, okay? So the Exodus has occurred. They've gone through the wilderness. 
Um, they had to spend 40 years wandering around. Eventually, God says it's time to go in. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land himself, but Joshua, his lieutenant, his second, second man, his right-hand man, does. And Joshua has become a military commander as well as the leader of the nation. Okay? So Joshua leads them in, and the instructions from God was to go in and drive out all the inhabitants. Now, God waited to fulfill this, his promise that he made so many years ago to Abraham to give the land back to Abraham's children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, on, on down, okay? So it's been several generations. They had spent 400 years in Egypt. So it's been a long time. Why? God tells us why. He waits for the corruption to mature of the Canaanites, of the people who live there. He's not going to punish them, drive them out until they have proven that they need, that they need to be driven out. Okay. So he tells the Israelites, when you go, I'm giving you this land. I will go before you. I will fight for you. Just go take it. But they falter. They go in and they take it bit by bit under the leadership of Joshua, but they fail in driving all the people out. Okay, so they wind up leaving Canaanites and some Philistines and some other ites uh, living among them there. Okay, now Moses started the process. Joshua continued the process. As they were conquering, they assigned each of the 12 tribes their own bit of land. And then each tribe then decides each family, what bit of land they get, and it becomes a permanent inheritance that passes down generation to generation, okay? And this map shows us the 12 tribes. Now, if you're familiar with the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, you'll notice that one of the sons, actually two of the sons, aren't up there. One of the sons that's not up there is Levi, and the reason is Levi is set aside to be the priests for Israel. They're the priestly class, the priestly family of Israel. Moses and Aaron, his brother, who was the first high priest, are Levites. And so God says, your inheritance is the Lord. They take care of the tabernacle. They take care of the ceremonial stuff of worship. And so that's what the Levites do. Now, a lot of them are concentrated around wherever the tabernacle is. And this is early. This is before Jerusalem. Jerusalem doesn't even exist yet. It's a, it's a town called Jabus. It's right there. Uh, it's in the blue where it says Benjamin. Uh, there's there, just north of the, the Dead Sea is this little body of water at the bottom. And just north and west, just a little bit, you can see Jerusalem. Uh, that's where Jabus was at the time of the conquest. Okay, but they they didn't even take Jabus. Jabus was belonged to a people called the Jabusites, the Jebusites. Okay, so so there's that. Uh, but where, so where did where was the where was the ark? You know where was the tabernacle? Well, it moved around some. For most of the time, it was at a place called Shiloh, which is at the top of Ephraim's property up there. Um, and for a little while, it was also at Bethel, 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 which actually means house of God. Okay. In fact, during this 
the time of this story, that's where the tabernacle is. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Okay? So now you kind of have this setting. The, the Levites don't have their own property, but they're, they're serving the tabernacle and later the temple. And they have Levite cities within the territories of the other families. And, they, and it's their own cities. They live there. They don't have family property, though, private property. It just it belongs to the Levites kind of as a whole. And then there's a, a place around the city where they can keep their animals and, and, and stuff. But you don't, you don't see a land of the Levites because the Levites are kind of the, the priests serving all of them. All right? The other one you don't see up there is Joseph. You all know the story of Joseph. Well, by the time, by the time the rest of his brothers come to Egypt, Joseph has already, you know, like saved the world <laughs> from famine and is a powerful man in Egypt and he's married and he has two children, two, two boys, Ephraim, well, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh's the older one and Ephraim's the younger one. And so when, when Jacob, uh, passes down the blessings, he divides it between Joseph's blessing, basically, between Ephraim and Manasseh. And you can see, they're a big part of it. Manasseh has a huge, a huge section, part on the west side and part on the east side of the Jordan. So, so that's the reason. You still have 12 territories, 12 tribes, um, but it's, they're no, they don't exactly coincide with the 12 sons of Jacob, but, and that's why. So some people don't know that. Some of you probably already do, and I apologize for uh, running back over uh, ter- familiar territory. All right. Okay, one one thing you do need to remember when you go through the book of Judges is from the time of Joshua till the time of Samuel is about 300, between 300 and 350 years. So you got several generations in there. And when you're reading through the book, it's easy to think, you know, why do they keep doing making the same mistakes over and over again? Because they do. They keep making the same mistakes over and over again. They keep chasing after idols. They keep... Building idols. Uh, and in the book of Judges, we, it's just over and over and over again. And as they slip into the practices of the people that they allowed to stay living among them, then they fall away from God and they fall away from His law. You know, they had promised on the way out of Egypt that they were going to be God's people called by His name. And part of that agreement was to abide by the laws that he gave them, okay? But once Joshua dies, you start seeing this downhill, this downhill, yeah, slide, thank you, this downhill slide. And it gets so bad that they're, they'll, they'll cry out to God because, you know, things are going badly, people they're, they're having invaders that are coming in and oppressing them. And then finally they'll call out to God and God will send them a savior, a judge. That's what the judges are, basically. They're leaders who do something very often very heroic. And we know some of those stories. You know, we know the story of Gideon, for instance. And we know about Deborah and we know about, um, Samson. You know, we know these people and the parts of the stories we usually read are the heroic, really good parts. And the parts that we tend to skip over are the parts where even they show their pretty blatant humanity, 
you know, where they messed up a lot. Um, Gideon, for instance, I mean, we know how he conquered with just a very small band of people. You know, he was, he, he, he demonstrates that. And he's talked about in Hebrews as, you know, a, mem- a member of that hall of faith. Uh, but after doing that, he winds up having numerous wives and concubines, has 70, 70 sons by them all. And one of the sons who is like an illegitimate son devises this terrible plot to kill all the rest of them. Okay. So, I mean, it's just, it, there's this little glimmer of glory momentarily, and then it's back in the toilet. You know, it just, it just, it's, it's that over and over and over again. All right. So here we are at chapter 19 and go ahead next in the slide, William. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. Maybe you can see the place names a little better now because all the action from this chapter occurs right here in the center. Now, Benjamin in the blue down here in the green at the bottom on the left, that's the land of Judah, which of course will be the the line of Christ, you know, the, the descendant of Judah. Uh, there's Bethlehem. You see it there. Uh, and then above Benjamin is Ephraim, and, and that's where all this is going to take place, okay? Now, Ephraim and Benjamin and the north part of Judah are all mountain country, hill country, rough, rough, rough country, okay? Um, so here's, here's where we're going to start. So, uh, shoot, come on. Really? Here we go. All right, so chapter 19, I'm going to start reading and then, then we'll talk through. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite sojourning in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four whole months. Okay, so it's kind of sounding bad already, right? We're getting, getting kind of an uncomfortable start here. All right, a couple of things here. All right, so he's a Levite. The priestly class, the people who ought to know the best, you know, what the laws of God are and, and should be the best about following them, you'd think. Okay. He's a Levite. He's a Levite. And he said, it says he's from the hill country of Ephraim, the purple property there, but he's taken a concubine who was originally from Bethlehem, which is down in Judah. Okay. We don't, it seems that he, he met her somewhere away from her hometown, and he took her as a concubine. Now, I need to talk a little bit about concubinage. Um, A concubine is like a second-class wife. Um, It's a wife without all all the privileges and rights of a full wife. Now, most of the time when when a man would take a concubine, it was not done like like a marriage, like a wedding, um, 
where they plan for it for a year, where it's an arrangement between the two families and, you know, there's this mutual respect and all that. It's usually more like he purchases her or he just makes an agreement with her to come live with him. He'll feed her and clothe her for certain privileges. Kids? <laughs> uh and that's that's the arrangement. But it is considered a legal and binding contract. You know, she still belongs to him. She has duties to him. And pretty much his duties are just to take care of her while she's his concubine. Okay. So um, we don't know the exact circumstances that this particular arrangement, but he took her. She lives with him. And then it goes on to say, she played the harlot against him. Now, the plain reading of that would be that she was unfaithful with him to another man. But there's pretty good reason to believe that that may not be the most likely reading of what that means. That phrase, played the harlot, is used very often when God's talking about the people of Israel that they that they're not faithful to him. But it's used as a secondary it's used as a secondary meaning of uh they were fed up and, and, and went away. Okay? And the honor culture that existed in the ancient Near East and in that time suggests that had she actually been unfaithful to him with another man, that would have brought so much shame on him and his family that he would have been obligated to have her put to death, you see. And so as we read the story, as we read the re- as we go into the story, you'll see that there's some things that happened that makes me think that that's probably not what happened. It says she went back to her father. You know, so I think that you know she just got fed up and she was unfaithful in that she didn't stay with him, but she left him, and she went back to her father. See, this would have brought shame on her father, too, had she been unfaithful with another man. So the father would have been likely to have demanded an honor killing there, sort of, you know, because because that would have brought shame on him. But that's not what happened. So we, we go on. So she was at her father's house for four months. She went back to... Bethlehem, he's up in, and uh, the Levites up in Ephraim, he decides he's going to go get her. He arose, he went after her, he spoke kindly to her to bring her back. And he brought a servant and a couple of donkeys with him. And he went to the father's house and he spoke to the young woman. And apparently she softened. He, he, he spoke nicely to her. She softened. She agreed to go back. The father takes him in, says, please, come in, stay, let me feed you, stay with me. There was this um, law of hospitality, or the guest rights, it's sometimes called, where anyone who is in a foreign land traveling, that it's considered an honor, in fact, it's pleasing to God, or this wasn't restricted even to just the Israelites or to uh, Jehovah worshipers, it, they believe, you know, these other pagan people believe that it somehow honored the pagan gods to take in 
a stranger and feed them in their house. And so he was eager to bring him in and feed him. And so he feeds him, he wines him, he dines him, he treats him like royalty, says, you know, stay, oh, stay the night. He stays the night. Next morning, he gets ready to go. The father says, don't go yet. Have something to eat. Have, so he sits back down, has, an, has another meal, has something to drink. It's afternoon. It's late, kind of getting late to, to travel. The father says, don't go. Don't go. It's too late to start traveling on the road. Stay with me another day. So he agrees to stay another night. And anyway, this goes on. And finally, on the fifth day, about the fifth day, uh, the, the, the man gets up. He has his breakfast. He, he has his meal with the, the host and he says, I can't stay any longer. We got to go. So he takes his concubine, takes his servant, takes his two donkeys and they head back through the hill country to go. But it's late in the day. He can't make the whole trip in one day. And so it starts getting nighttime and they're coming close to Jebus. Jebus, which will later be Jerusalem, but right now it's full of Jebusites, not Israelites. These are worshipers of other gods, right? So the, the servant says, let's stop here. I mean, it's too late to keep traveling. It's not safe on the road. Let's stop here. Maybe we can find somebody who'll put us up. The Levite says, no, no, we're not going to stay with some unclean pagan, you know, non-Israelite. We're going to keep traveling. There's a town up ahead called Gibeah, and that's where we're going to go. So they, they get at Gibeah, get to Gibeah as it's getting dark. It's really, it's, get, it's really late now. And, he was expecting someone to offer to take him in, but nobody does. And so he and his servant are preparing to spend the night in the town square. And while he's there, there's another man who's been living there, but he's from Ephraim. And he sees the Levite and he says, what are you, what are you doing out here? And he says, well, we're traveling. But nobody is taking us in. He goes, you can't stay out here. You need to get inside. It's not, it's not good to be out here. Come, come, come stay with me. So he offers his home hospitality, probably because they're from the same area, but he, he offers him to come in. They get inside and, well, let's just read this. Give you night men, perverted men, it says, come banging on the door saying, we know you got a stranger in there. We want to meet him. We want to get to know him. And all that that means. Well, the man who's being host, it's his responsibility as the host to protect those who are under his roof. And so he tells them, he says, no, don't do this evil thing. You know, he's under my roof. I cannot let you do this. In fact, he offers his virgin daughter and the concubine to these men as a replacement. And they're saying, no, no, we, 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 want, we want you to send him out. We want to know him. And finally, the Levite takes his concubine and pushes her out the door. They slam the door and they lock it. And she's out there all night with these men who abuse her all night long. It says the next morning when the Levite rises, so he slept through the night. He gets up, he rises, he opens the door, and his concubine has obviously crawled back to the stoop, just out the step, just outside the door, and she's laying there 
with her hands on the step. And he says, get up, let's go. But she doesn't get up. But she can't get up. We don't know whether she's already dead or whether she dies on the way, but she has been abused to death. So the Levite throws her on his donkey, and he travels on home with her. Then once he gets home, he dismembers her into 12 parts and sends one part to each of the tribes of Israel. Well, this, this starts a stir. That's the fact. That's the end of the chapter. Gets hold, uh, gets, lays a hold of the concubine take into 12 parts with a knife. And all that saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel. Speak up. All right, so there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of artwork. I'll just put it up here for just a minute. William, would you? This is called The Concubine. One art, one artist's rendering. Um, go on, William. We don't want to dwell there too long. All right, that's the story from chapter nineteen. I'm just going to very briefly tell you about the aftermath. What happens afterwards in chapter in chapter twenty and twenty one? The message goes viral. You know, they didn't have the internet. But these body parts floating around, that got everybody's attention, and everybody got up in arms about that. Um, not unlike kind of what happened with George Floyd. You know, it's like everybody, everybody watched those videos, right? Everybody saw it. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was angry about it. Something has to be done. That's, that's kind of what was happening there. So they gathered together. And they, it says 400,000 Israelite men who drew the sword. So they're up in arms, literally. And they gather together and they get, go to the Levite. What happened? How did this, what, what, what went on? He tells a story. Now he gives a little bit of a redacted version of the story as he's telling them. As the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, he answered and he said, My concubine and I went to Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. So I took a hold of her, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. He conveniently left out the part that he threw her out there, you know. But they're they're outraged by this. This was this was beyond the pale. This this that has happened, and so they go to to Benjamin. These you know four hundred thousand armed men from Israel. They go to the tribe of Benjamin and they say, "This this happened in Gibeah. You need to bring those men out so that justice can be served." But the Benjaminites, go ahead, William. 
Next one. Oh, keep going. I'm sorry, I just duplicated that one. All right. But the Benjaminites, they didn't comply. They were rebellious. They said, no, no, nobody else is going to exact justice on our people. In fact, they gathered together 26,000 fighters of their own, and they all went to Gibeah to protect, to protect their interests, I guess, and protect their own people. Now, you think 400,000 against 26,000, this ought to be quick, right? Well, you got to remember, these uh, Ephraimites, and, or these Benjaminites, these Benjaminites, they're corn-fed mountain boys, okay? They're eagle-eyed, sling-wielding uh, mountain boys, and they're, they're, they're good fighters. Plus, they have the advantage of being in a, a, what's probably a walled city that helps to protect them. So that's, that's you know, tact, uh, a tactical advantage. So the battle ensues. Uh, actually, first of all, the rest of the Israelites, now, now they go to Bethel and they ask God, what should we do? I mean, this is, this is horrendous and it's in Israel. What should we do? Who should we send first? I mean, that's obvious. We've got to do something about it. Who should we send first? God says, we'll send Judah first. Because she was, she was from Judah, so that, you know. Send Judah first. Well, the Benjaminites, the Gibeonites, the people from Gibeah, they, they, they clean up. I mean, they kill like 20, I think it's 22,000 people that first battle. So things aren't going well. Israelites come back and said, God, do we still pursue this? Do we still try to make justice happen by attacking our brother tribe, Benjamin? God says, yes, go back. So they go back another for another battle. The Benjaminites defeat them again, killing another 18,000. They've got 40,000 40, Israelites that are dead so far. And so far we're not, we haven't heard anything about Benjaminites casualties. So they go back to God again and says, hey, this isn't going so well, God. Uh, what, what do we do? Do we, do we keep doing this? God said, yes, do it. Go back. This time I'll hand them, I'll hand them over to you. And that time they actually do this ploy where they look like they're going to attack. When Benjamin comes out to, to resist them, they act like they're being routed and running. And then, so it's luring the Benjaminites out to, to chase them, but they have most of their forces kind of waiting and hiding for an ambush. And this time, they catch them out, you see. And they wind up killing 25,000 of the 26,000 Benjaminites. Only 1,000 of them left. Then... You know, Israel is so, they're all so upset and mad about what Benjamin has done. They take a vow that they will not give any of their daughters to Benjamin for wives. And while, while they were chasing their men around and slaughtering them, they had gone in and killed all the women. You see? So now you got a thousand Benjamite, a remnant of a thousand Benjaminite men with no women and no prospect for women. At least Israelite women, because they won't—they've taken a vow that they're not going to let them have it. Well, after a while, they kind of thought about that and kind of had sort of 
you know, oath, oath makers remorse because they said, well, you know, our brother Benjamin is part of us and now they're going to disappear because they can't have wives. What are we going to do about that? Because we took a vow. We can't, we can't go back on our vow. We can't offer them wives. So what do we do? Well, there was one town, uh, Jabeth Gilead, I believe it was. Do, 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 do. Yeah, Jabesh Gilead, uh, that did not send any fighting men to this battle. And so that, that, that didn't set well with them. And so they said, here, here you go, guys from Benjamin, here, here's what we'll do. There's a festival every year that these people go up, these women go up to, uh, to celebrate. You know, these girls, they dress up, they're gonna do, they're gonna dance at the festival and stuff. What you need to do is, since, you know, they're, they're holding a grudge, they said, what you need to do is just lay in hiding, and when those these women go up to the festival, just steal them, just take them back, make them your make them your wives, okay? And that way the ben, the Benjamin line can continue, and that's their solution. All right, then here's how it ends. <laughs> next next slide. So the children of Israel, the men of Israel, turned back against the children of Benjamin, struck them down. I said, no, is that, that, I'm sorry, I messed up. I didn't keep up in my scripture. Here it is. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his own tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, you thought that I was going to elevate the mood in this here, in, in, in here when I, <laughs> no, there, there's nothing happy about this. This is a story, this is one of those cases where scripture is descriptive and not prescriptive. This is not how to do things. This is how not to do things. This is what happens when man neglects God. Now this, there was no king in Israel that it's, that it's, that it ends on. That phrase is repeated multiple times throughout this bush, the book of Judges. And why are they fixated on not having a king? They, they need a king. A king is a unifying force. A king is someone to rally behind for one thing. So politically, there's an advantage of having one man at the head that sets the vision for all of them so that they can all be kind of on the same page. So politically, a king makes sense. Now, God warns them that there are drawbacks because the kings that they're going to choose or even the kings that God chooses for them later on are human. And they're not perfect. And they have glaring, they have glaring flaws. We know those stories. So there's good and bad about having a king. But I think that there's something else behind that phrase, there is no king in Israel. It's not just that they don't have a political leader, somebody to hold them together, to give them direction, 
to give them focus. They were refusing to honor God as their king. He told them that they were going to be his people. He'd already given them instructions. All they had to do was follow those instructions, and they refused to do it. There was no king in Israel because they didn't accept the king that they had, and they wanted to put another king in in place, a, a human king, you see. So that's the story. Now, what are we going to take away from that? Huh? There are a few things. One, God is a jealous God. Now, I know what that means. I know what that means. I have a jealous wife. I do. She's nodding back there. In fact, this, this, this last week, uh, I called her. It was late after hours. I'd been at work long day. I was, you know, there 30 minutes or so after I was usually getting off. And I said, Oh, I'm, 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 I'm about to leave. And she goes, and, and there was a, um, there was a cat in the in the clinic, and the cat made a noise. And she goes, "Oh, is is uh, one of your employees there with you?" And I said, "No, no, just me." And she goes, "I thought I heard a woman's voice." <laughs> and I said, "No, she knows to be quiet when I'm on the phone." <laughs> and and my wife said, "You know, I would give you a beautiful funeral." But I will kill you. <laughs> and, and I tend to believe her. Um, now, God is a jealous God. He wants his people to be his people. That's because he loves them. And he knows what's best for them. Now, there may be other things that motivates Karen's jealousy, but one of them is that she knows what's best for me. And I know that she knows what's best for me. All right. What else? Why did God choose Israel? Was it because they're such great people? Obviously not. Because they're so upstanding, pure, and moral? No, no. My dad likes to say he's he's glad for the stories about Peter, and and Larry says the same type of thing, because Peter gets us all in. You know, if he can save Peter, he can save me. If he can save the Israelites, he can save anybody. So that's hope for everybody. All right, and one other, it's, it's not a side, it's kind of a side item, but it's not a side item. It's an important item, and especially considering what's been said this morning already. People get upset because Scripture never directly condemns like concubines, concubinage, or polygamy. You, you hear about patriarchs and kings that have multiple wives and multiple concubines. And the Bible never, in the law, never says explicitly, don't do that. But the 
the plan, God's plan for marriage was made plain from the beginning. He said, it is not good for a man to be alone. And so he makes him a helper. Now, we read that, and helper in English is a bad, is a, because we think that, oh, he's the man, and she's the helper. That's not what it means. In fact, most of the time when that Hebrew word is used, God is the one who is the helper. It's more like, that guy, he needs some help. He needs a strong woman to help him. That's more what that means. She was taken, she wasn't taken from his head to rule over him. She wasn't taken from his foot so that he could press her down. He was taken from her side. She was taken from his side as equals. They have, and this, this is a big discussion. And within the church, it's a big discussion. Complementarian versus egalitarian views of marriage and views of church leadership and all that. It's, it's a conversation that has to happen because it's, it, it views the way we, we look at scripture, it views the way we look at society. But if we look, Jesus makes it clear when he gets here. He makes it clear what God's plan was from the beginning. He refers back to the beginning. Says that that they are both created in the, in the image of God. In the image of God, He created them, and it's them together that most perfectly reflects that image. And so Jesus makes it clear that it's one man and one woman. That's the plan, and every aberration from that is is just that. It's an aberration. It's, it's straying you know, from, from God's original perfect plan. So we see that the Israelites adopted these practices that were ungodly. And they adopted them and employed them sometimes in their attitudes towards women. You know, women were often abused, neglected mistreated, treated as property. And that's just a fact that has continued, unfortunately, here and there quite a lot throughout history. And it's been said that, you know, where where men are wicked, women suffer. And that's true where men are wicked, children suffer. And it it works in the reverse. Where women are wicked, men suffer too. But if we take that image of Christ as the bridegroom and Paul's recommendation for men to love their wives as Christ loves the church, we can have a discussion, but there's not going to be an argument because the woman will not have an issue with a man who does everything for her good, who puts her needs in front of his own as Christ, as Christ did. And so if, as, insofar as we can imitate Christ in that, we will go a long way to keep our marriages and families strong. And, uh, it, it does grieve me that 
you know, that we have so much trouble keeping families together, even within the church. Now, I will tell you one bit of hopeful thing that I just learned this past week. You've probably heard the statistic that divorce rates among church members is just as high as it is among the rest of the population. That, that as a raw statistic, is true. You know, people who claim to be Christians don't stay married any better or any longer than those who do not. But it's interesting, if you divide that further down and divide it, nominal Christians, nominal means in name only, nominal Christians who just claim to be Christians and maybe attend church periodically versus those who are trying to walk the walk, attend church, part of the Bible study, basically living the Christian life, then you see that the chances of staying together for those who are trying to walk the walk is something like 30 to 50% higher than the general population. And those who are nominal Christians, it's actually 20 to 30% lower than the general population. Now, why is that? Well, I don't know that I know the answer, but one possible answer is that those guys who say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian because the Bible tells me I can dominate my wife. And they use that as justification for the way they treat their wives. And why would that marriage last? So, All right. That's it. Um, the worship this morning and the prayer this morning was very powerful. I know that there are people who are fighting depression and have been wounded. Um, and it's easy to read a story like this and be pretty hard on these Israelites. But you have to remember, they don't have Jesus yet. They got the law. And they did a bad job of following that. But they didn't have the grace and the mercy that Jesus demonstrated for us. We do. There was no king in Israel. But there's a king now in the church. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we will just bow the knee to him, he doesn't force us into it. He's not an oppressive husband. He has our best interests. It's hard. Thanks. Yeah.